The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Mike Adams, author of Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell, and you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Mike Adams to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. Mike Adams, an engineer turned salesperson, taught himself storytelling on the job while selling and managing sales teams in the United Kingdom, Russia, India, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Australia for international corporations Schlumberger, Siemens, Nokia, and Halliburton. And since 2014, Mike has been helping companies find and develop their own stories through his storytelling consulting practice. And interesting fact, he grew up in Tasmania, the island state of Australia, located 150 miles to the south of the Australian mainland. Mike, congratulations on seven stories every salesperson must tell and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, wonderful to be on your show and, and to hear such a, an animated introduction. Thank you. Well, of course, all there and there are listeners, Marketing Book Podcast listeners in, uh, in Australia. I hear from them all the time. And uh, so they don't know, need to know about Tasmania, but I did want to make sure everybody knew sort of where Tasmania was. And I just have to ask, have you ever seen a Tasmanian devil? Absolutely. And if you go to Tasmania, there are devil parks. You can go and see them. They're not the most cuddly animal. Oh, I got <laughs> they, that impression. But, I... they, but, they, but they don't spin around in circles like on the cartoon show. You know. <laughs> oh, that'll be a disappointment. Yes. No, it's, it looked very interesting. It looked like uh, you, you really want to kind of stay away from them and they want to stay away from humans. And apparently they smell awful, but they've got a wicked bite. 
That's it. Yes, that's it. Yeah, exactly right. About the size of a house cat, you know, the, that, that sort of size. Right, yeah. right. Well, they're nice to look at, um, but I think I, I just want to look at them. So, Mike, tell us the story of how this book came to be. Story, get it? See? <laughs> tell us yes. the story of how this book came to be and why you wrote it. Yeah, well, I'm an engineer, as you said in your introduction, So, and selling and writing books on stories should not be uh, in my story. But I, I was very fortunate. I worked in the international oil and gas industry out of university from Tasmania, and I've been transferred to London uh, from the field. I worked on oil rigs, and then I worked on software in London, and my boss called me into his office one day, and he said, Mike... Um, We've got this great career opportunity, and anyone that's worked in corporate knows that that's a, a laden Uh-oh. term of potential danger. Yeah. And he said, we want you to move to Norway. And I'm going, yes, yes, that's good, and be a salesperson there. And I'm, no, no, because <laughs> I really wanted to stay. I was working on neural networks and fancy software. and But um, but what I said was, look, you know, my, my wife's pregnant. I don't think we can go. And, and she – is more adventurous than I am, and uh, she wanted to go to Norway, and and we flew when she was eight months pregnant, and I became a salesperson. I was even on an early 1996 on an early version of a mobile phone, in the delivery room, much to her disgust. <laughs> but you didn't jump whole hog because you said, okay, I'll do sales, but if it's not for me, I, I want out, and and I want to go back to to doing my engineering job. That's true. And you know, I had this amazing good fortune, Douglas. I closed the biggest deal worldwide in our software division by a total accident. I hit what the um, the Gartner CB guys call a, a mobilizer, a guy in a client organization, what is now Total, who liked our brand new software and didn't just think it was good for himself, but he, there happened to be a conference of all his the managers from the, all over the world in Stavanger in Norway at the time. And he got up on stage and gave a, the, the best animated demonstration of our software that you've ever seen to, a, to the worldwide audience of Total. It was called Elf back then. Wasn't his father in vaudeville? Yeah, his father was an actor. <laughs> so he had it like, in his genes. He had it in his genes. And I was sitting next to my boss in our auditorium with like 50 of these guys from, from Total. And, and my boss turned to me at the end of his like, Mike, that was just fantastic, you know. And uh, it's good for your ego, right? But And I thought I, I could sell like a lot of salespeople, right? They think they're brilliant when they make their first sale. Right. You thought, man, I could I could do this. This is I can do this. This, this is that hard. This, this is easy. <laughs> of course, it's not easy at all. But I had got the bug then. I, I really enjoyed the whole thing, and and I, I I got good at it. I was working for a company that had fabulous training, which is not the case mostly these days. And I was ending. I ended up. I was running a sales team in Russia, and. Um, it was time for us to come home. There's a couple of safety incidents there, and and uh, and I needed to come back to Australia. and And we had bought a house in Melbourne, but I'd never lived in Melbourne. and um, And there's no oil and gas industry in Melbourne, so I kind of rearranged my CV. and I obviously told a very good story, Douglas, because I landed the job selling really big ticket. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of telecoms equipment to the big telco provider in Australia for Siemens, a German. Uh, multinational company. And I used to joke to my friends that I was perfect for that job, apart from not knowing anything about the client, my company, or telecoms industry. Well, and, you know, you laugh, though, but uh, you did not have the curse of knowledge. 
I didn't. And so you 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 can ask the dumb question because those are the only kind of questions you know. Right. So you, you but then you went to others. You, you you went from one industry to the next to the next. That's and right. That's right. I guess being an engineer, it seems like you 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 started to say, well, okay, so sales is not as easy as I thought it was when I got that first big deal. Correct. And you started correct. to, I guess, being a scientist by nature, you were trying to say, what is it that is helping these people uh, sell well? It's like you were trying to reverse engineer the success. When I started my consulting business four years ago, I was trying to help salespeople say the right thing. In fact, if someone asked me today, what do you do? I, that's what I say. I help salespeople say the right thing. And my recurring experience was traveling with salespeople and hearing them say the wrong thing. My, my salespeople, I, I had many sales teams. And it's a really difficult problem, Douglas, um, because people get into bad conversation habits. And I had noticed storytelling by then, but I didn't start off teaching storytelling when I started my consulting business. I started the traditional questioning techniques. And um, But because I'm an engineer, I wasn't happy to give a two-day training course and leave it at that. I would ring up the sales guys three, six months later and I, it just hurt me in the pit of my stomach. They had forgotten everything I taught them, and I mean everything. The only thing they remembered was the few stories that I told them, and I started changing the whole training round to teaching stories first, and that works brilliantly. I ring them up six months later now. They tell me the stories back, and they tell me the stories of them telling the stories. Right, and let's 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 unpack that just a bit because you said that in the book you talk about how there are a lot of successful salespeople who are Correct. almost unconsciously telling stories, uh, and occasionally they do it right and occasionally they do it wrong, but it's these stories that seem to be what is unlocking uh, these what, what might have seemed like impossible sales. Absolutely right. And I look out for these people now. When I go into a new client, I'm looking for the storyteller, and I know there will be because every successful company has one. It's usually the founder or the CEO, or it's the head of the business, or it's the best sales guy, depending on the age of the company. But you, I seek them out. And they are usually what I call unconscious storytellers. They tell one after. Sometimes, sometimes people complain about them that you can't get a word in because they tell too many stories, but they're still effective. Telling too many stories is better than not telling any story. Right. The, be the best is to tell just the right amount of stories and encourage your client to tell you stories. You don't want to tell so many stories that the client can't get their story in because that's where the rapport starts. Right, and there's a few th do's and don'ts as it relates to stories, and we're going to talk about that. Let's back up for a minute, and let's talk about the perceptions of stories. And I have a feeling that there's a lot of perception and particularly misperception of the use of stories and storytelling in business along the lines of, oh, it's branding or it's some other buzzword or it's, it's Hansel and Gretel or it's, it's not making, it's making up stories. So what are the perceptions of stories that you run into? And what do you say to those people who, you know, uh, at first blush say, oh, stories are sort of unbusinesslike and, you know, we just want to get to the point. You know, what, what do you say to these folks? That's a critically important question. It really is. And, and all of those things you said, Douglas, are the misconceptions about storytelling. It's not businesslike. It's childish. It's, it's Hollywood. It's dramatic. And, it, and what, I, what I'm talking about is maybe the better word is anecdote. I'm talking about short one to two minute anecdotes that deliver your message. 
And there's a very good reason why we should do this in conversation and in brand marketing. And the reason is, it is how our brains work. Our brains are wired, our cortex is wired to look for patterns that repeat in sequence memorize them and predict what's going to happen next. That's what you have, That's what that wrinkly, the big wrinkly part of your brain, it is a memory sequence prediction organ. So it is predicting everything. And it's not just predicting what you're going to say. Your mind was predicting I was going to say the word say then or tell. It's not just predicting that. It's predicting what you're going to see. It's predicting how you're going to feel internally. And it's predicting how the person who's listening to you is going to feel as well. So we are continuously predicting. And because stories, by definition, are sequences of related events, that's a very important definition. If it's not a sequence of related events, it's not a story. And because they're a sequence, and we know from childhood that stories are, are unpredictable, we pay attention. And the key thing to know about stories is humans learn and think and plan and remember with story. And whenever we hear a story, we pay attention because we know it's going to be unpredictable and we know we'll probably learn something. And that isn't true of, of non-story. And what non-story is, is assertions and fact and opinion that isn't in a sequence of events. That's non-story. So it is a Im really important thing for your listeners to know that humans respond to stories. Now, there's a lot of pop psychology written about storytelling, about the emotions and the amygdala, and it's kind of true. But the most important thing about brain science and stories is to know that we are predicting, our brains are predicting all the time, our cortex and stories are unpredictable. And we want to predict what's going to happen. And we, and so we really pay attention. And that's what is so in short supply, I think, more in the last five years since smartphones than anything. People don't pay attention. So you've got this tool that you can use in your marketing and your selling conversations that you know your client will listen to that can contain the messages and they'll remember it what could be more beautiful than that it is just a wonderful thing yeah explain what you mean when you say that stories and questions are your anti-pushback tools there is a natural tendency to push back against opinion um, if you tell me a fact Typically what happens, and it happens a lot with technical people like me, is you tell me a fact and I start thinking about the conditions when that might be not be true. <laughs> you know, I, I, I visited a, a client when I was in telecoms in Malaysia. It was the CTO of a big mobile telephone company. And, and I had with me the technical sales guy. And one of the questions I asked this guy early on was, you know, how many base stations, mobile base station towers do you have deployed? And he said 5,000. And my technical guy said, no, no, it's 4,911. <laughs> I laughed when I saw that in the book. Yeah, that was great. Very engineer-like. Correct, but it's pushback. Yeah. And we do it all the time with facts. So we don't actually believe facts. We want to push back against facts. So if you tell people, you know, a fact, and, and sales guys love to tell facts like, you know, we're the number one company in our industry, mm -hmm. that is instant pushback. But if you tell the story about how your company came to be number one, they're just listening and accepting and believing. So now questions, 
it's interesting you say questions because questions is mostly what sales training's been. You know, and one of the fabulous things about writing this book and becoming an author is I've been able to reach out to other authors. And my hero author was Mike Bosworth, who wrote Solution Selling in the 1990s. And he wrote the forward for seven stories. So it was just wonderful to have video conferences with Mike and talk about questions and stories. And, um, you know, and he wrote in his foreword that he felt that rapport building couldn't be taught when he started sales training in the 1970s. And essentially, solution selling is a questioning manual. It's teaching salespeople to ask questions. And they are incredibly powerful questions. But the the huge problem is, until you're trusted, no one is going to answer your questions honestly or completely. So the first job is is to get rapport, is is to be trusted, and the stories are what do that. The questions don't make you trusted. Questions actually cannot place new information in the mind of your client or your, your future customer. They can make your client think about something you'd like to think about, but they can't put new information there, but stories can. So stories are anti-pushback, they're a way to create rapport, and they're a way to influence, and they're a way to get things done, all in one beautiful little conversation technique. Yeah. So in the book, and you've already mentioned the Challenger Customer, Challenger Sale, two of my favorite, favorite, favorite books. In fact, I, I was able to interview uh, one of the authors of the Challenger Customer here on the Marketing Book Podcast, Pat Spinner. And I remember in the interview and in the book, which I've read twice now, <laughs> he he talks about how it, the, the the authors talk about how if you're if you're selling something, anything, you're selling change. True. And uh, we're going to talk about insights, but before we do that, I want you to explain this uh, simple story framework that you have in the book. And and the reason I was particularly interested in that is because I've read about Joseph Campbell's, you know, monomyth and the the hero's yep. journey and seventeen parts. And I just, it's just I, I can't. Uh, it's not simple enough for for my 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 brain to use. But your four part story, if you could talk about that, that. I think that uh, might help for listeners to not be so intimidated at this this storytelling thing. Yes, so you're right. You know, Joseph Campbell. Um, you know, he's a uh, you know a, a researcher of comparative myth and religion, and it's it's complex. The simplest story could be three parts. So remembering that. It has to be a sequence of events. So we start with a setting, and and a setting is critically important because and the setting is usually in this time and in this place this was happening. And when I say that, when I say in 1996 when I was in the UK I went to Norway, you know that there's a story coming. So the setting signals story, and people relax. And it's also the first event. So I said a story has to be a sequence of events where we start with the setting. Let me interject, uh, Mike, one very important thing. One thing you should never do, though, is say, let me tell you a story. True. (laughs) Yes, that's right. A good way to start is that reminds me of, or I remember back when, that kind of thing. If we say, let me tell you a story, people people could be instantly turned off. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's right. So, I, you know, that's a challenge is I talk a lot about storytelling and story, but you should not use the word story in your business conversations. And you may you may struggle to, to do that for a bit. So you've got the setting. Setting. 
a complication. So we're in this sort of a stable situation setting and now something is going wrong, not planned. We're, we, we're moving into a situation that was uh, was unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen. And then we resolve that situation. We, we make it right, usually with a happy story, not always. And then we make a point. We, our story makes a business point. That's it. Those are the four steps. And six of the seven stories are just that simple format. Now, there is a character in that story, and and humans relate to stories with characters. Even our, our movies with animals or cartoon characters, they're still human-like, if you think of Shrek or Finding Nemo. Or the Tasmanian Devil. Correct. We humanize our characters. So humans are interested in what happens to other humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the next point, you know, that, that we should be a human, it should be unpredictable. And let me add to that, Mike, it should be a human and it should be the customer, not the company. Well, that depends on what type of story you're telling. Okay. So if you're telling if you're telling a success story, yes, it should be the story of a customer like the person I'm talking with who succeeded, like that, you know, that right. like them, right? So, so that's that type, and that is actually a six-part story. So that's the only one of the seven stories that is a six-part story, and I will explain that one in a moment. Uh, but the others are just simple stories, and the character is usually yourself. Or it's the founder of your company, if you're telling your company story, maybe. Or it's your researcher, if you're telling an insight story, the person who discovered the insight, that you're telling their story. Right. So before we go further, let me ask you to explain this ingenious fishing analogy that ties all the it's the framework for all the stories. Yes, you'll see a, a picture of a fishing fly on the front of the book, which was drawn by my wife. She's a, an artist. And... Um, uh, so I used I hit upon the idea of the uh, the fishing analogy. I actually put twenty rainbow trout, Douglas, in our swimming pool um, early last year. I had this idea I was going to fish them out for friends, you know, in the summer, and um, the pool went green and then black, and then um, <laughs> and then uh, I kind of figured out how to manage the bacteria. And we used to feed them every day. With our dog used to go nuts, you know, what, feeding the fish, and then they all died because I stopped putting the bacteria in, and the and uh, they all suffocated i think and they'd already grown up to big fish they were like 1.2 kilo but that made me think about fishing and um and i like the analogy because the book is in four parts the first part is about stories and understanding stories what they are really and how to construct them and that's the lure you can think of creating your lure ahead of time because we need to construct our stories and find the best stories before we have the conversations with our clients the next part is the hook. We're going to cast the line and we need to hook. And that is connecting, making a trusting, liking, authoritative connection with a future client. And those are the stories, are your personal story. I told my personal story. The story of the key staff in your organization, maybe your CEO or your head of customer support, and your company story. Most, most salespeople cannot tell their company story, and it's a really important story for creating connection, mm-hmm. where, you, where you're not just making assertions about your company. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, seriously, I've met many of you and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful 
or will be because all the research indicates that big learners are big earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial. But there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan, that's what I did, and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now, back to the show. Let's go back to the personal story, because that is so interesting and it seems uh, like a prerequisite to, to getting to any of the others. And you mentioned that um, you know a, a prerequisite for being a friend is that you've exchanged stories yes. in a common context. Please explain that. If you think about who your friends are, you know their story and they know your story. I think that's the boundary towards friendship. They're just acquaintances until you've shared stories. And that is a really interesting insight. The reason to tell your personal story in a first meeting, normally a first face-to-face meeting, you can't tell your personal story on a cold call um, because you've interrupted someone. But when they've agreed to a meeting, if you tell your personal story and and you're reasonably practiced at it so you can do it in a couple of minutes, And then you say these magic words, enough about me, what about you? How did you get into this job? How did you become the head of procurement or how did you become the business manager of this? Now, if you have put into your story a little bit about your career and your story explains why you do what you do, and if you've put something a little bit personal, my wife was eight months pregnant when we went to Norway, that is seeding 
their personal story that comes back to you and you will get a kind of similar story. Now, it's not going to be tight like yours because they haven't practiced it. It might take three or four minutes, but it's a wonderful thing to hear from someone you've never met before, a possible future client, a little bit of their background and their personality, and and it creates a bond and a sense of trust that is unbelievably valuable. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly valuable. And, 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 you know, this is something that has not been properly taught in any sales book, in my opinion. Um, you know, salespeople used to be taught to look at photographs on the client's desk and see that they're interested in fishing. And, <laughs> and that is a very, very shallow, shallow way to connect, right? And, and also, it's asking them to tell you about their personal life without you opening up first. You haven't shown any vulnerability. And, and vulnerability in a personal story is what actually connects. The fact that I was just lucky in my first sales role, you know, well, maybe not many B2B sales people would, would openly say that, but it's true. Yeah. And, and there's a huge amount of luck involved in selling. Um, so, so that's being vulnerable. And, and the, here in Douglas is where the connection starts to happen. And this is really important. And top sales people do this unconsciously and, it, but it can be taught. So the, those are the hook stories. It's where you, you you tell your personal story. There's also and these are large sections of the book. Key staff yes. story, and then and then company creation story. But let's go to the next uh, arc, part of the arc, the yes. story arc, and the so those are the hook stories. Then yes. there are fight stories. Yes. So fight stories. So now we've hooked the fish. And this fish is jumping out of the water. It doesn't want. It doesn't want to be hooked. Your client does not want to buy. In fact, your client would rather not do anything. They would rather not change. Yes. Mo- most companies would rather just keep doing what they're doing. So you have a fight on your hands, even if it isn't a fight against a competitor. Uh, so there's a fight. You need to change them from where they are now to a better place. Mm-hmm. And there are two stories that will get you there. They are success stories and insight stories. I'll start with insight stories because that's like the startup position. If you're a startup or if you're BD, and by BD I mean you're selling a new territory or a new product, you're opening up a new business, you don't have a success story. Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest place to be in selling. I've been there most of my career. When you don't have a success story, it's difficult. You need an insight story. Now, you mentioned uh, the excellent books by uh, the Challenger books by C.B. Gartner, um, Challenger Sales and Challenger Customer. I actually think Challenger Customer is one of the best books written in the whole B2B sales arena. I I would agree. It just, and when I interviewed Pat Spinner, I said, you know, your book has just blown my mind, unlike the last 50. It was, but it was so, I was so happy to see you talk about it. And you even talked about some of the specific examples they use because I really studied that one and it's definitely worth reading. Um, yes. But, so I was glad to hear about this, this insight stories because it, your, your book helped to add a little bit more of an understanding for me to what they had written about. So here's the, here's the issue with insight. If you have a challenging insight, so Challenger Sales says, that the best salespeople are the ones that challenge their client and move them. They change them out of their current state. And challenger customer says, it defines an insight. It defines an insight. It says an insight is something that your company and you know about your 
client's market that they don't appreciate, but they should. Mm -hmm. Now, by definition, this is difficult because your client, of course, they know their business well. And here's this vendor turning up trying to tell them they don't know about their business, right? And I think, and I know, and you spoke with Pat Spinner and I spoke with Brent Adamson. And um, the problem is that the problem with challenger selling is right there. How do I challenge a client who really does know their business and probably doesn't want an arrogant salesperson telling them you don't know what you're doing. Yes, and let me just interject one thing. There was another author on the podcast named Deb Calvert, who was one of the co-authors of Stop Selling and Start Leading. And in the book, uh, she talked about, I think it was some seminar she'd been to, and all of these sales experts were saying, look, Challenger sale does not mean some 26-year-old shows up and tells you you don't know how to run your business. It doesn't, but if the 26-year-old learns the inside story, they can do it. Yes, but that's that's the story. That's that that's the, this is a missing ingredient. The story is the missing ingredient because by definition your client doesn't know something they need to know. And you and I've already explained that you can't just go and tell them because that's going to get pushback. So if your 26-year-old sales guy cannot tell the client something they don't know about their business as a statement, but they can tell the insight story. The other name for the insight story would be the researcher's story. How did your company get to learn about that insight? How did you discover it, including the false leads and the surprises and all of that. Can you tell the story of how you got it into the market, how you got that story there? Because that's interesting and your 50-year-old client will listen to the 26-year-old sales guy if they can deliver that as a narrative, as a story. So let's give an example of an inside story, uh, perhaps the one from um, your mining days, selling to the mining industry. So when I joined the mining industry, so another reason, you know, another reason to start consulting was, you know, I had this sort of repeated experience of being the guy that doesn't know anything about the the industries working in, and that was the case when I worked in facility services, and um, so our company, a uh, big company, a forty thousand staff company in Australia, ha- had uh, a large mining company as a client. And, uh, and they were spending $60 million a year with us, which is a reasonable amount. And I wanted to know why they bought from us. And I didn't get very good answers from, my, in, from our headquarters. So I went and talked to the guy in Perth in Western Australia. And, and, um, and we were talking and, and he was explaining the business. And I'd just come from one of the townships up in the Kimberley. I've been, it's about three hours flight north of where most of the world's iron ore is mined and uh, massive, massive operation. And... I had been there and I'd realized that our company were refurbishing houses for a massive amount of money, um, about a few hundred thousand dollars to refurbish fibro houses that brand new would have cost maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Right. And you mentioned that they were uh, investing cyclically. So in other words, when business was good, they would spend money on housing all their workers. And then when it was bad, they wouldn't invest any money. And then it was even worse. Correct. So That's they, right. it was feast and famine. They had $3 billion worth of township and camps, and every time the commodity price was high, they couldn't get workers, and they would just throw money at the problem because they had to have accommodation. So they're spending you know, 
up nearly a million dollars just painting, refurbishing a house that they could have bought for in the downturn, $100,000. And he knew about the problem, but he didn't know how to solve that problem. And I was thinking about it when I went back to our headquarters and um, I got to know about some of the other parts of our business. I was working for a company called Spotless and, and we had been delivering a lot of what are called social infrastructure, public-private partnerships. So things like hospitals and prisons and they're an interesting contract structure. They're a 20-year contract, and they are public finance coupled with um, public finance, a construction company, and then an operating company. Our company was the operating company that would operate this asset over the life of the asset. And I thought, well, that's very clever because what it does is it it actually smooths out the political cycles because when, when parliamentary governments invest in something like a hospital – the opposition party opposes the investment, you know, as a matter of principle, usually, right? So then what was happening was that, you know, the the government would get swapped, the opposition would come in and then shut down the hospital and you'd get this sort of half-built assets or you'd, you know, it was just no way to run public assets. So that contracting structure, the 20, 25-year contract, solved that cyclic problem. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if that could work in the mining industry because you'll have that same cyclic problem with the commodity price. So I pitched the idea back – well, I told the story of the hospital, actually. I told the story of one of our hospitals and the problem with the parliamentary governments and hospitals in Victoria and then shifted that on to isn't that similar to your industry? And, and my client was one of the biggest mining companies in the world, was really interested. And we flew them to Melbourne and we went through the whole structure. And um, unfortunately for me, my company got taken over. And when I presented that deal as a $3 billion total deal, they um, they only had one question, which is, when will it close? And I said, look, it's an 18-month sales cycle. And they were buying the company to churn it, to sell it again, to relist it in 12 months and didn't want to do the deal. So our major competitors signed that deal, $300 million a year, $3 billion deal. Right. But that's where you brought an insight story in. And uh, Correct. they were able to probably see themselves in that story, and no one else had had approached them that way. Let, let's go to the third one, which is the the land story. So we've got just to recap, we've got hook stories, and then connecting, yep, right, and then fight, fight. stories where they're, um, you know, they the uh, the people don't want to change. Uh, our caveman brains are afraid of change. It's, it's helped us to survive because change often meant some kind of threat. And uh, then the land stories. These are the stories to help close the deal. Talk a little bit about those. Yeah. So um, as we've already discussed, you know, in my career, I've been involved in, in very large deals and invariably that tenders. Explain what a tender is because this American had to look that up. Okay. So in even if you come to your client with an insight and you say, you know, we've got this great idea and here's how it works. If it's a few hundred million dollars or if even a few a million or two dollars, your client is pretty much obligated to put that out to bid. Right. Uh, and so that's like a request that's a ten, for a proposal. Ten, uh, correct, correct, correct right. which means it'll become competitive. Yeah. And what happens then is you lose control. As the salesperson, you no longer know what's happening. You've submitted your tender, but you can no longer influence because you're locked out. Well, you think you can influence it. Well, you can influence it if you know the right stories to tell. 
So the typical situation is, so let's take that inside example, which did go to tender, by the way, um, even though, you know, there's insight there and one company has an inside running. So you have someone that you've worked with before the tender, we'll call them your sponsor. They like you, they trust you, they they they're going to fight to have your solution, but they're going to go into a stakeholder meeting with the CFO and other commercial people, procurement, all other departments, and the other people are concerned about risk and possible failures, things that could go wrong. Is it the right priority? Everything, their careers, right? So this is where it all goes wrong for salespeople. Now, if if you've been able to tell your sponsor a values story, which is a story about how your company's what your company actually values in how you deal with your clients, then your sponsor will be able to argue for you much more effectively. Even their tone of voice will be much more powerful. And I'll give you an example. So I worked for seven years for the German multinational company Siemens. Mm-hmm. It's a massive engineering company. Great example. More than yeah. more than a hundred billion dollars. Yeah. And when I joined them from Schlumberger, I couldn't work out how they sold anything because from my perspective, their marketing was not great and they didn't have a sales organization to speak of or sales processes much. And their products weren't necessarily the very best. Not necessarily the best. They did have these big slide packs and they'd say, we're number four in the world. And I'm thinking, well, why doesn't my client just talk to number two, one, two, and three? <laughs> and um, But then I started hearing these stories uh, Douglas and um, I'll give you I was actually in the country CEO's office and he took a call from the state government so I'm hearing half a call and I could tell that he was agitated and stressed by this call and he hung up and he said Mike we've been delivering the transformers the inverter transformers for Basslink now that's an electricity cable that goes from mainland Australia to Tasmania where I grew up 400 kilometers under the ocean and um the inverters convert AC power in Victoria to DC, DC under the water, and then vice versa in Tasmania. So they built six of these in Germany, and the ship that was bringing them to Australia hit a storm in the in the Southern Ocean, broke its rudder, and smashed all six transformers beyond repair. And it was an 18-month build cycle, right? So this is like huge public infrastructure, multi-billion dollar project at risk because of this accident. And... Albert, the CEO, told me, he said, Mike, um, I talked to the Siemens board. They, they've fast-tracked. It's going to be five months to build six new transformers. And they're not, they didn't worry about litigation or you know, who they're going to sue for the ship or the rudder or any of that, the transport company they're building. When they delivered those second-build transformers and the whole project went on time. Now, that's, that's a value story. They stood behind their product they got it there on time they they delivered and that's that was example of one of the stories i think there was another one from siemens if i'm not mistaken it talks about yeah, how all- they just did whatever they had to do to get Correct. it done and in the final analysis uh that was worth a lot to uh their customers being able to sleep at night even if maybe it wasn't the top product or the cheapest product. Correct, correct. And that company was full of those stories, uh, Douglas. And and you can just imagine your sponsor, right? He's heard one or two of those stories. And then someone says, you know, is there, are these guys going to stand by us? What happens if it doesn't work? Just the tone of voice is going to carry the day. And these stories are incredibly powerful in that situation. Yeah, and they can be – you can tell them in 60 seconds rather Correct. than in uh, 60 minutes on a PowerPoint 
slides. So, so what do salespeople do instead? They say, we stand by you. If it goes wrong, we'll fix it. Everyone says that. Yeah, everyone pushes back like the guy that was uh, counting up the number of towers that was your colleague. That's it. Of course, they push back. But they listen to that story and they go, my, my goodness, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. And so you hear the difference, right? The difference between telling your client that you can be trusted and you will deliver and telling them that story is chalk and cheese. You cannot compare the impact of those two approaches. They are completely different. And, you know, there was something, in, another thing in your book that reminded me of a client I had years ago, and I a very successful IT firm. And they, um, I remember talking to the CEO one day, and he, because uh, we were, you know, preparing a lot of marketing materials for them, helping them to get their story out there. And uh, he told this interesting thing that came up again in your book. And he said, you know, when we go meet with a, a corporation that wants to hire us and the subject of referrals comes up, I mean, not referrals, uh, references. He always said, you know, we can give you a list of happy companies that, you know, where we haven't had that much trouble and, and they've had great results. But why don't we give you a list of the companies, our clients, where we have had a problem and we've worked through it? Why don't you talk to them instead? <laughs> that I is thought that that's was absolute genius. That yeah. is absolute genius. And a lot of people look, some of the examples of value stories that I give in the book are exactly that. They're things gone wrong that you needed to fix. But if you think about it, your client doesn't believe that everything's perfect story. Like, that's not believable. Well, they it was, want it was to an know. an anti-pushback, just like you talked correct, about in the book. Correct, yeah. correct, correct. So that's, yeah, that's that's a, a really powerful story. And we should talk a little bit about marketing. Well, I agree. And let me, let me first say, obviously, this is the Marketing Book Podcast, okay? Yes. So why do I want to interview <laughs> so many sales book <laughs> authors? And it's because the best marketers have a deep understanding of the sales process. And as a marketer, you can read, as I do, I read these sales books and I find so many great places where marketing can have enormous impact. But I interrupted. Go ahead. <laughs> That's right. So because I'm an engineer and I think in terms of systems and I've and you look at these stories and there are types of stories to tell at certain types of the sales process – and these stories are repeatable. You can tell the same story client after client after client, but not every story is as good as every other story. What you want to do and what marketers need to do is find the best stories and curate them, put them in a story library. So if you can curate your company story and make sure your salespeople can tell them, curate your best success stories, your insight stories for new markets, your value stories – there are some other types, but those are the key ones for marketers. You you have a, let's say, a story lens on your company. I have these stories that are doing work for you, that, that are being delivered out through the sales teams and in your marketing campaigns, because you can obviously use these stories as well. It's, it's very easy. Marketers get too hung up in confidentiality. They take what should be a good success story and pull all the life out of it. They take the customer character out, they remove the failures, and they turn it into a bland case study. A success story is a story of a client like your normal clients 
who had a big problem, who almost failed. They met you as a guide and then they succeeded, but there has to be a journey. And you don't have to name them or their company. You can just say, look, we had a client in this situation. We'll call her Sue. And she was in this situation. And then you tell the story, but don't don't throw away the good stuff. Keep the vulnerability, keep the failures, keep their name, describe that person a little bit, that hero of the story, which is in this case, the customer in the success story. Mm -hmm. And these stories will do work for you day, day in, day out. Your salespeople will use them and they change what your clients think of your company. They make you much more likable as an organization. Mm, so true. So true. So Mike, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? It's actually that. It's have a story lens, a story perspective of your company. Your company, most companies fail. Your company succeeded through stories. You just don't know what they are. So find them and look after them because they're doing fabulous work for you. So just open your eyes to the fact that there are brilliant stories in your company. I have not I've worked across so many industries, Douglas, I've not come across a company that doesn't have very interesting stories. They're everywhere. Uh, so well said. And in the book, you go into great detail about how to extract this information. Much of it can come from your customers. And one of many interesting points in the book is when you said, it's amazing how so many companies don't think their customers have nice things to say about them. Uh, most companies, they, they have a skewed interaction with their clients. They, they hear from their clients when something goes wrong. And they don't realize that their clients actually really like them, and they, and, but they forget to ask. They don't know how to ask the right way to get those success stories out, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's well covered in the book, how to do that. Yeah. yeah. So what books have inspired your work and career? You've mentioned so many in the, in the, in, yeah, in so the book, I, but what I, are some of the ones that really uh, were sort of milestones for your career? Well, solution selling was, you know, I've got a copy here behind me um, that's got pen marks all through it. But, you know, what, you know, I tried to teach solution selling both in Halliburton and in Nokia to my sales guys, and I couldn't teach it. Uh, and I think this is what Mike, also, Mike Bosworth also figured out. Um, and so, yeah, so that one, the Challenger books, I, I really like Tom Fries's book, uh, The Secrets of Question-Based Selling, because I think that is the easiest to implement questioning system that's been written. Um, I, I, most of the books I read, Douglas, are not sales books. I, I love to read about neuroscience and artificial intelligence and, uh, and how our brain really works, which is the, the most complicated thing in the universe that we know of. And that's a smart thing to do is not just to read sales books because when you read uh, broadly, that's where a lot of those insights come from, like the crazy idea you had for the mining company. Correct. And I might mention two non-sales and marketing books. Um, one is How Emotions Are Made by Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. That Most of the psychology and brain science written about selling and storytelling is what I call pop psychology. It's, it's not really very relevant to business. But that book tells you really how emotions work in our brain and how we really think with emotions. And it's a brilliant book. And the other one is The Elephant in the Brain by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. And that's about how we don't really know why we do things. There's a fabulous quote that, um, that uh, Robin Hansen has, which is, uh, you are not the CEO of your brain, you are the press secretary. Oh, that's right. I, I, I noted that in the book. I thought that was terrific. 
So in other words, we do things and we don't know why we do them. We kind of make up a nice good reason afterwards, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and, and I hope everyone heard that was from an engineer, okay? Correct. <laughs> For all those engineers that think, I'm not influenced, I'm completely analytical, nothing could be uh-huh. further from the truth. And we yeah. will make sure to include links to all those books in your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Mike, are there any um, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Uh, you mentioned one on the show. I haven't actually met, read um, Deb's book yet, um, the, the Stop oh, Selling yeah. and start, start Leading. So that's on my list. And when you sit down to write a book, you one of the things you have to stop doing is reading books. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> so, I understand. That's I'm a terrific good. book. And they fielded some very interesting research uh, that went into the book about what is it that, what is it that buyers want help with. And and uh, and uh, you also told me at the beginning of the show about Anthony uh, Ianarino. Ianarino. It's Anarino. I have trouble. Anarino. And, and I'm glad you yes. mentioned that because I have read his book. He has come. His uh, I hope to interview him soon. Um, his book is going to come out in early November. It's his third book, and I've interviewed him about the first two. His books are amazing, and his book is called "Eat Their Lunch: Winning Customers yeah. Away." From your competition. So it's about competitive displacement. And the reason I wanted to mention that is because he talks, I would say most of the book, it's about insights, just what Good. you talked about. So, so this week I read two of them and I'm, uh, I'm overdosing on, on, on insights. It's, it's, it's terrific. And obviously, uh, these two books, but also others were, you're, you're going to be hearing more and more about that. Yeah, well, I, I really like Anthony's. I follow his uh, podcasts, and he's someone that I really respect. So I'm going definitely reading that one. Well, you know, I asked the question, but I, I'd like to suggest one, and that is uh, James Muir, who uh, wrote the Perfect Close, and oh he, yeah, that's he's a listener book. to the Marketing Book Podcast, and he read your book and emailed us both and said, Douglas, you have to interview Mike Adams. I love this book. So. Uh, James Muir, who's he's a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, so hello, James. He's probably working out right now as he's listening to this. But uh, that's a that's a terrific book, the perfect close. I use James's question every day of the week. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. does it make sense to do this? It's it's that book. Yeah, that's right. That's a great book. I'm glad you reminded me of James' yeah. book. And actually, I learned about his book because Jeb Blunt and Anthony Anarino both talked about it in uh, some interviews I did with them. So, Mike, how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? Right. Well, it's easy to find. Seven stories every salesperson must tell. It's on Amazon as a Kindle. I'm going to keep running the sale at $2.99. I really want people to to read the book. Uh, that's the ebook, uh, but you can get it as a softback or a hardback. I'm currently doing an Audible. I think that's going to take me five or six weeks. There's a website, my7stories.com, and there is free online training that people can look at to help start preparing their own stories as well. Uh, there's some paid stories, uh, paid training associated with that as well. But there are there's a full training module that's free, and there are links from the book to that training as well. And we're going to include. We've got a bunch of links here. We, we've got you've got a book website. I'm going to link to your LinkedIn profile, the the online the training courses. Heck, we're going to even link to your company's website. Um, Thank you. 
And uh, so that's all going to be at Marketing Book Podcast. For the listener, if you're not, if you're driving, okay, uh, but, but if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like uh, I, Apple iTunes Podcasts, or I think they call it Apple Podcasts now, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on uh, the show notes link. The name of the book is Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. The author is Mike Adams. Mike, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It was an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed that chat. That was good fun. And that closes the book on episode 195 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor Blinkist to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. And please join us next time as we welcome Ann Janzer back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Writing to be Understood, What Works and Why. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.